I have always felt, I mean, I mean always, my whole life, that whether the economy provides comfort and security and safety for people is as important as anything else. Welcome to the Work Goes On, a podcast from the Industrial Relations section at Princeton University. I'm your host, Orly Ashenfelter, the Joseph Douglas Green, 1895 Professor of Economics at Princeton University. In this podcast series of conversations with leading thinkers and practitioners, we are creating an oral history of an entire generation of industrial relations experts and labor economists whose contributions to their fields have been absolutely extraordinary. Our guest today is Robert Solo, who is Institute Professor of Economics Emeritus at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He is renowned for his work on the role of labor markets in macroeconomic analysis, as well as for his work in the economics of growth and many other topics. Bob, welcome to The Work Goes On. I'm glad to be here. I mean that in very many senses. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Let, let's begin the discussion by talking about your background. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. And I know that you went to Harvard College, but with a hiatus or a break. Yeah, there's a long story there. By the way, the important thing about my background, I think, is not so much Brooklyn, although that's, of course, a fabled place. But I was born in 1924, so I'm now almost exactly 98 and a half years old. But 1924, that means I was six years old and a a pretty precocious six years old in 1930, the first year of the Great Depression of the 1930s, and I was 16 years old in 1940 when the Depression was clearly over. So I was not only a child of Brooklyn, I was a child of the Great Depression. And it has, I think it's been an important fact about my own life and what I've done because there are very optimistic ways of looking at the economy, at an industrial capitalist economy like ours, and they just don't wash for me. And they've never washed for me since I was a kid. By the way, I, sh- I should say I was not a deprived child. I, I come from a certainly not upper middle class probably not the very lower middle class, but I come from a middle, middle class family. My father was never wholly out of work. He had to take, he was a furrier, by the way. Uh, He had to take jobs that he would rather not have had, but he paid the rent and, and we were never deprived. But all during that childhood, from 1930 to 1940, I was conscious of the fact that almost the only thing my parents talked about was the general insecurity of things. 
the fact that you never knew where the next dollar would would come from. I, I knew, for instance, that there was a high school math teacher in their circle of friends. And for a long time, they sort of felt sorry for him because he wasn't paid very well. But by 1935, they envied him because he had a secure job. He knew he'd be employed next month. So I have always felt, I mean, I mean always, my whole life, that whether the economy provides comfort and security and safety for people is as important as anything else. So we just want to keep that that in mind. And in my view of uh, the labor market, you don't, this is a now a maturer view, you don't forget that. You don't ask about efficiency and stuff like that without taking account whether the labor market provides comfort, psychological comfort for people. So anyhow, I, I just... I wanted to say that because, because, yeah, because it's important. So there I am growing up in Brooklyn, and I went to the New York City public schools, and they were good schools. And that, by the way, that's worth talking about too. Let me, let me think for that, about that for a minute. I know how to make city schools better than they are. It takes two things. First of all, you have a massive depression so that there are no jobs to be had. And secondly, you discriminate against women and you keep them out of all the decent jobs in the economy. And so you force them into school teaching. And I had very good teachers during the depression. Many of them, not all of them, but many of them, maybe most of them, were women uh, who were, I now see, were very smart, very able. And it was the combination of the depression and discrimination that put them in school teaching jobs. So we could fix it. All we need is a depression and discrimination. By the way, the high school I went to, James Madison High School in Brooklyn, where Gary Becker graduated as well, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg graduated as well. And Senator Schumer, Chuck Schumer graduated as well. It was a neighborhood school. It was nothing special. It just sat there. It was three blocks from where I lived. It had 10,000 students. That high school had 10,000 students. It was so crowded, it ran on double session. The freshmen and sophomores went from eight in the morning until one in the afternoon. And then the juniors and seniors went from one in the afternoon until six o'clock in the evening. Well, Bob, Bob, how did you how did you get from there to Harvard? I got from there to Harvard because I got sort of semi-adopted in my you know, junior senior year at Madison High School by a school teacher, by one of those very smart school teachers, an English teacher. Before that, before she sort of took me over. I was very smart. I got, I got good grades, but there was nothing intellectual about me. I didn't have any intellectual interests. I played ball in the streets, but uh, she got me, got me interested 
in reading novels and in politics and things like that. And she sort of insisted that instead of doing the routine thing and going to Brooklyn College, which I would, it's a public university, uh, which I would normally have done, that I apply to Harvard and to Columbia, and I did, and I got in. And so I owe the fact that I went to Harvard to Mrs. Towster, who taught English at Madison High School and, uh, and taught me. She insisted I apply, and I did. So, and I got in, and I managed to get a scholarship so I could go. Between that and a part-time job, I could afford it, and uh, and off I went to Harvard. By the way, by the way, I was 16, 16 years old when I went to college. I, when I got to Harvard, I was behind all of the prep school kids who had been given an education more oriented toward higher education than I had been. It took maybe one term to catch up with them because I had been I had been well educated in the New York City public schools. But anyhow, there I was at Harvard, age sixteen, and I did okay. I did fine. Well how did you end up in the army? I can remember that. In in nineteen forty two I turned eighteen and I arrived back in Cambridge for my junior year at Harvard. And it started off absolutely routinely. One of the courses I was taking was a course in the psychology of personality, which I was taking because my advisor, whom I admired and respected very much, told me to take it. And also because I had already, by that time, had the feeling that society wasn't working very well. Remember, the Depression and the war had, had started, and, I, and there was always the chance that there was something in human nature that had to do with it. So very early in the term, like September, late September, probably maybe early October 1942, I'm sitting in a class, classroom, assiduously taking notes in a course on the psychology of personality. And I am not interested in the psychology of personality. But there I am, like the good student I am, taking notes, taking notes. And suddenly it occurred to me, I can't do this. I just can't do it. I'm, I can't go for another 13 weeks, the length of a term semester, can't go for 13 weeks every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday taking notes on the psychology of personality when over there in Europe, the most important thing that's going to happen in the rest of my life, namely the struggle to defeat Hitler and the Nazis, is going on. How can I expect myself to sit here and take notes and take notes and take notes? So I sat till the end of the lecture continuing to take notes. When the lecture was over, I packed up my notebook and my, my pencil or pen or whatever I was using, and I walked out of that the building. 
I walked one block to Harvard Square. I walked into the subway, put my nickel in the slot. I got out at Park Street, where I knew there was a recruiting station, and I enlisted in the Army. Just like that. It took me about, uh, well, from the middle of that lecture until a little after it was over. And I hadn't thought about it before. It just came over me uh, that I I can't spend all this time doing this while something very important is going on without me there in Europe. So I found myself in the army. Basic training? You had, where did you have basic training? Now that that's that's an interesting thing. The army was famous for putting square pegs in round holes, but in my case, <laughs> they didn't do that. I had two capacities that were sort of by chance. I was a fairly fluent speaker of German because the roommate I had been assigned as a freshman was a German refugee, and we became friends for life, and I started to study German. I figured, what a good opportunity. I was fluent in German, and I happened to know Morse code. So they- Morse code and German, okay. Well, some smart person assigned me to the Signal Corps, and uh, and the Signal Corps put me in a unit whose business was intercepting tactical German radio traffic and translating and decoding it if it was in simple codes. I don't, this is not like uh, the fancy people at Fletchley Park, uh, like in the movies. This was combat stuff. We were listening to company commanders talking to their battalions or even uh, people talking to their company commanders. And so uh, I ended up doing that sort of work, combat radio intelligence in Italy for close to three years. So when, when I came back at age 21, I'd had more experience as a soldier than I had at anything else. The, in, in Italy for three years, I bet that was fun. Was it fun? No, it was not fun because <laughs> no, we were fighting a war and it was not fun. On the other hand, I did get to love Italy, but uh, it was definitely not fun. Uh, I wanted nothing so much as to survive and get home and marry the girl, which I did. Barbara Lewis. Which I did. How did you meet Barbara Lewis? In a class. Then by Oh, by the way, that's all part of this story. I told you how I just all of a sudden upped at the beginning of my junior year and joined the Army. Well, I was at in that same junior year, I was attending a non-credit seminar that met one evening a week on the subject of capitalism, socialism, and democracy. And it was being taught by Joseph Schumpeter, as you can imagine, and Paul Sweezy, a Marxist, and someone else on the faculty. And so one evening a week, uh, by the way, when I joined the army in uh, early October, September, the system then was, they gave you a six-week, rough six-week or eight-week period, 
and and a, and a date at the end of that. And that was the date that you had to turn up and put on a uniform and take the oath and start being a soldier. So in the intervening six or eight weeks, I had nothing else to do but hang around Cambridge Mass. And uh, I, I think I stopped going to the psychology of personality, but I, con- <laughs> but I continued going to the capitalism, socialism, and democracy. And a week or two later, I met this girl and uh, I fell for her like a ton of bricks. And, and by the six, when the six weeks were over and I had to go off to Fort Devens and put on a uniform and disappear into the army, we had already decided that we would get married when I got back, if I got back in one piece. As, as you've been talking, I think uh, it's apparent that you have a fantastic sense of humor. And I want to I want to read something to you. I've, I got a copy, by the way, of your Royer lectures at Berkeley, uh-huh. and I want to read I want to read you something from it. There is a vast literature on the determination of nominal wage rates in volume and variety. It rivals the literature on losing weight. <laughs> <laughs> you you even think that's funny? I thought that was hysterical. Yeah. So yeah, there's so <laughs> no that, that I think everybody has a story uh, of, of you and your humor. Where that, not everybody has that. Where does that come from? I don't know. I must have been born with, uh, with that. I don't really know, Orly. From an early age, I've had the feeling that sort of the world was nuts. You know, things happen <laughs> that you couldn't possibly explain in any intelligible way. And things strike me as as amusing, as, as funny. I don't know. And, I, and as you can tell from the way we're going on, uh, you get me started. I have a loose tongue. And, and, <laughs> and uh, when I said or wrote that passage that you just read out, uh, that wasn't, it, that, it just must have, of course, I don't remember this. It must just have occurred to me that uh, here's all this literature and the world looks funny to me. Everybody has has a different stories about you and humor. The, another thing that I, I wanted to ask you about, in, in the Royer lectures, there's a very nice list of all your publications. Yeah. And uh, I know your doctoral dissertation was done at Harvard. Who was your advisor? I don't really know who my formal advisor was. It was maybe Vasily Leontief, who was sort of, my main teacher, but nobody advised me on that thesis because nobody in the Harvard Economics Department, and I would guess nobody at Harvard University, was interested in probability models. And I was interested in probability. That's what it is. It's a, the thesis is a, an attempt to model changes in employment and wages as a random process. And so I really had no no guidance on that. I wrote it myself. I don't even think I wrote it, most of it, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I got, just like I said, I was got interested in probability and statistics. And Harvard University was miserable. That's a compliment. 
Harvard University was miserable at probability and statistics. So I took, I got a fellowship from the Ford Foundation, a dissertation writing fellowship, and I spent it at Columbia University. And I took courses in probability and statistics from Abraham Wald and and mm. Jacob Wolfowitz and Ted Anderson, really first class people who were totally unavailable at Harvard, who had essentially nothing. That is fascinating. I know the the, the I, I wanted to ask you about publications. And when I when I look through this list, it's a very nice list, a nice little book. Um, what struck me most, though, was at least in the first twenty years that you were writing, many many of the papers are book reviews. Yes. I'm just was shocked, actually. I didn't, I, I know the papers, uh, the growth paper and, yeah. the, and the Markov model of employment. I was completely unaware of all of these book reviews that you wrote. How did that happen? Well, I guess there are two things I can say about, uh, about that. First of all, I, I really, in those days and still, I don't much enjoy the act of writing. I think I write reasonably well, but I don't, I just don't like it. I don't get any pleasure out of it. So I often had some small idea and didn't bother. I'd work it out, but I wouldn't bother writing it up because I just took no pleasure in it. But people would ask me to write a book review. And if the book looked interesting, uh, I'm just a girl who can't say no. And, uh, 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 and I would... I, I would agree, and I and I read a number of interesting books that way that I might have missed that left to my left to myself. I don't think I have a. I've written a lot. I get more credit than I deserve, but uh, but that's just because I don't. I just don't like writing. I understand. I have to ask you about this because you're one of the few people around who can talk about it. You actually served as a senior economist at the Council of Economic Advisors. Yes, I did. When Kennedy was there. Yes. What was that like? That that also is interesting. I didn't really want to do that. The one thing we have to say that I haven't said yet is that I love teaching. And I was teaching at MIT, and I was a happy little fella teaching at, at MIT. And when... Walter Heller and Jim Tobin and Kermit Gordon asked me to come and and spend uh, a year or more as an economist at the Council of Economic Advisors, just at the very beginning of the of the Kennedy administration. My first inclination was to say no, but uh, Bobby, my wife, sort of shamed me into taking the the job. So no, it was literally, literally. Uh, well, I will quote to you, because uh, when I told her I had been talking to them, they called one night when we were already in bed, and I got to get out of bed to answer the phone. I came back, and I told her that they wanted me to, to do that, and, and, I, and I said, I don't, I don't want to do that. What do I, I need a job in Washington. Like, I need a hole in the head. Uh, I'll call them tomorrow and tell them no. And she said, you know... I've heard you complain about the policies of the Eisenhower administration for several years. Don't you think it's time you put your money where your mouth is? 
<laughs> so I thought for about 60 seconds, and I said, I don't have any answer to that. I said, if I take the job, will you and the kids come? She said, you bet we will. So the next day I said I would go. But that was, in spite of the fact I didn't want to do it, it was a wonderful experience, and it taught me a lot. First of all, it was a very good group of people. If you're interested in macroeconomics and you spend your late nights chatting with Jim Tobin and Art Oaken about macroeconomics, you're having a good time. And I did. And I learned to, uh, I learned a lot about economics because I was, oh, good Lord, this, this I have to tell you just popped into my head. That experience actually solidified my interest in labor markets because almost the first chore that Walter Heller, who was the chairman of the council, gave me was there, there was a, an idea circulating that the this was 1961 and the unemployment rate was, oh, I don't know, about 7%, something like that was high. And Kennedy's promise was to lower unemployment. And the idea circulated that the unemployment was, quote, structural, end quote, that it, the high unemployment was due to a fundamental mismatch between the, the available supply of labor and the sorts of people that uh, employers wanted. And Walter gave me the task of sorting that out. And so I did a crash research in what labor market data I could find from the BLS and elsewhere and came to the conclusion that, of course, there was this kind of structural unemployment, but there was no evidence, there was really no evidence that, had, that it had worsened in recent years. So if any increase in employment, in unemployment, we really couldn't attribute in a, in a major way to a worsening, to a bulge of this structural unemployment. So, but, but that necessity to, oh, I should say this, uh, Walter Heller, the chairman, was a night owl, and his method of operation was to hang around the White House all during the day. And whenever the, any conversation turned to an economic matter, Walter would say, oh, I can get a memo on that to you by tomorrow morning. <laughs> and then he'd come back at five o'clock and he'd say, well, we have, by tomorrow morning, we have to produce a memo on this and a memo on that and a memo on something else. And, oh, Orly, I remember this. Of course, I would have to call home and my poor three or four-year-old son would pick up the phone. I'd say, I have to talk to mom. And I could hear him say, mom, it's dad. He's going to tell you he can't come home for dinner. <laughs> and, and so I'd settle down with a pastrami sandwich or something, and we would all work hard and and get tomorrow morning's memos out. But that's 
that's in a way good training. That's that's in a way good training, especially when you have good people, smart people to talk to. And I I like that. I I have the notion that a lot of progress is due not to individuals, but to groups, to research communities. And uh, I, and I have enjoyed what I think is a, a virtuous circle. If you're in a group that is doing good work, it'll have a high morale. And if it has high morale, it'll do good work. And I've had that experience several times. And the, and the Council of Economic Advisors in those, in the, I was going to say the early years of the Kennedy administration, but there only were early years, of course. Uh, that was one of those experiences. We we worked our behinds off, but it was fun. And I think we did pretty good work, although a lot, some of it appears now to have been erroneous, but uh, that <laughs> happens. And, and, sure. uh, uh, and we enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I have another thing uh, from your Royer lectures, which I, I was, it, it's certainly appropriate for this podcast. And I want to read just a little bit more of what you wrote. You say, one of the first courses I attended as an undergraduate some 50 years ago was John Dunlop's on labor economics. Ever since then, a lot of my best friends have been labor economists. Maybe that is why it has long been a source of nagging intellectual discomfort for me that the treatment of the labor market by macroeconomic theorists is so much at variance with the beliefs of those who study it most closely. I have a couple questions. First, the last person I had on in the podcast was Dick Freeman, who, of course, worked with John Dunlop. Oh, yeah. In fact, Dunlop was his supervisor. So that Dunlop has shown up again. What this was? You were an undergraduate. This must have been in 1940, 1941. Yes, thereabouts. What did you think of him? Did you did you know John Dunlop very well? No, I met him. I knew him a little. Yeah. Well, the thing about about Dunlop was, first of all, he he was a bundle of energy. I don't know what his middle name was, John T. Dunlop, but everyone <laughs> thought his middle name was Tiger. And uh, <laughs> no, it's, I'm, I'm telling you the truth. And and so he he was very energetic. He had this odd mixture of, in his writing, making labor economics part of economics, of doing it as a branch of economics. But also, he was very anxious to be practical and often had the notion that anything could be fixed if you put him in a room with the people who caused the problem, he could get that problem fixed. And that I never came quite to believe. But he, he but, but Dunlop, John Dunlop, uh, put so much energy into thinking about the labor market that it was contagious. It was, it was like a disease. So I, I took that course, Economics 81, as I remember, probably as a sophomore at, uh, at Harvard College. And I got to be friends with John Dunlop for long after. Yeah. That's very interesting. I, he, he, he was so connected to the Department of Labor that when I worked there once, the uh, executive dining room, which was in the basement, 
was open to him. <laughs> so he would just walk in like he owned the place. And that's consistent with what you said. Um, we, the, so the little book is called uh, The Labor Market as a Social Institution. And uh, it's hard to summarize everything that you have done to try to uh, provide a more compelling way of thinking about labor markets and macroeconomics. But what would you say, if I just ask you for one or two things, what would you say are the things that you tried to do in, in, in that area? I had two preliminary thoughts that I, I think are in those, those lectures. One was that I really was convinced that uh, people's behavior in the labor market was strongly, really strongly influenced by feelings of fairness. Uh, for instance, I, somehow, I'm not sure whether this is correct or not, but I remember having the feeling that the, the, the structure of relative wages of occupational differentials, seniority differentials, and things like that was very fixed in the labor market. It was hard to change. People would kill for their, uh, for their differentials, and that it probably had some justification, but certainly not a complete justification in the realities of productivity and, uh, and that sort of thing. And that the that you could not understand the development of wages unless you understood the fact that that workers, wage earners themselves, had strong feelings about what was right and proper, and that employers either came to agree with them or thought that it was unwise to disagree too strongly with that. So I wanted, I wanted to get that notion of fairness. And as I, God, I have remembered this just now for the first time in 70 years or whatever it is. Did I quote this in those lectures? A long passage in which Alfred Marshall agreed with me. Yes, I, you, you do quote it. Marshall had that same feeling about the importance of uh, of fairness, and I wanted to get build that in, and I think I did in one lecture, and then in the in another lecture, I I, I worked out a kind of semi game theoretic uh, arrangement in which a group of workers could punish someone who violated their norms of what was right and proper. And I wanted to, well, you would know this at least as well as I. I have the economist's instinct for getting something modeled uh, right. And I've, I worked out a, a model in which anyone who violated what the group norm was to his or her in those days, it was mostly his uh, advantage could be punished by uh, his peers in the labor market. I thought, and that's where the title of the 
uh, lectures came from, I thought that you could not just do simple supply and demand uh, in the labor market. You had to uh, take account of the fact that these animals had strong feelings about uh, about what they were what they were doing. So I enjoyed that. I, I really enjoyed writing that. I, I you know I could see that you were having a good time writing it, and that, of course there's the quote about how the literature on on wage uh, uh, inflation is, is is as varied as uh, the literature on losing weight. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind yeah. of a hard one to beat. I, we're coming to the end now, and I just have one more question I want to ask you, and it's really about current matters. But you're one of the few people, I think, that I could ask this question that might actually have lived through a part of it. There is a period uh, the current situation with high inflation, well, of course, the inflation rate is coming down now, but yeah. uh, it, it has been high, very low unemployment, and there was, until recently, uh, weak growth. I, I looked back at the period when you came back from the Army, 1946-47, and I don't know if you remember, but the inflation rate in 1946 was something like 16%. Yeah. The unemployment rate was low. And real growth was negative, about nine minus nine percent. And I think there were two or three years that were clearly a response to the Second World War and the fact that we had disrupted. I mean, no automobiles were made with model years 43, yeah. 44, 45. And so suddenly there was a big demand for all that. Do you think what do you think about the comparison of what we see today post COVID with that period post war? That's interesting because. I, I I had not thought about that, but I, I think that there's a, the demobilization from the war did have some of the characteristics that made the, the COVID economy such a problem. There were supply chain uh, disruptions at the end at the end of the war. There were temporary people who were leaving the labor force. Uh, all these able-bodied males uh, coming out of the army were uh, rejoining the labor force. The one big difference, Orly, is that I would think one big difference is that 46, 47, that's about the time that industrial unions are replacing craft unions. And you might have some of the strong disruption might have come about as part of the shift in power relations between workers and employers in in the major heavy industries in in steel and autos and aluminum and and things like that there there is a disruption in in the supply side of the economy that Bears bears a family resemblance to what you got in COVID. I I'd never I had never thought about that, but I I think it's real. I wondered too whether anybody had ever tried to construct an economic model of that that very brief period after this uh, major shock. Did any, I don't think anybody's ever explained how. It, I don't think anybody ever did, and and I certainly couldn't because that's the time when I was. Just beginning to study economics, really. Uh, uh, and you, or you were in the Army, one or the other. Bob, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, talking to you today. And 
I'll, I'm going to close out now, but I just want to make it clear. I realize that it's an effort uh, to do this, but you have you have 98 years that uh, seem to have nothing has changed in your brain, as far as I can tell. Uh, and it's been just an incredible pleasure to have you. It's been fun. It's been fun, Orly. Our guest today has been Robert Solo, the Institute Professor of Economics Emeritus at MIT. Please join us again for the next episode of The Work Goes On, an oral history of industrial relations and labor economics from the industrial relations section at Princeton University, when we will speak with Frank Stafford, Professor of Economics Emeritus at the University of Michigan, and also co-principal investigator on the panel survey of income dynamics. I'm your host, Orly Ashenfelder. Thanks for listening. The Work Goes On is a production from the Industrial Relations section at Princeton University. For more information on our people, research, events, and programming, visit our website, irs.princeton.edu.